Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Test Disruptors podcast. My name is Anurag Rana, and I'm a technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have the founder and CEO of C3AI, Tom Siebel, as our guest today. As most of our listeners know, Tom is a legend in the software world. We look forward to his insights on C3AI, as well as the entire software landscape. So without any delay, let's give the floor to Tom for a history and background of both himself and the most recent company he founded. Hello, Anurag. Nice to see you. So, so what do you think? Give us a little bit of background of yourself and the company, please. Okay. Well, this is my fourth decade in the information technology business, and I am a computer scientist from the University of Illinois, Urbana. I did my graduate work in relational database theory and went to work for a startup company doing about 2 million in revenue called Oracle Corporation. And uh, that turned out to be a pretty good idea. And ultimately I was one of the guys who ran that business and it was the professional experience of a lifetime in, I left in 1992. Okay. And started a company called Siebel Systems, which was about the application of information technology and communication technology to sales, marketing, customer service. And we created that market that we know of as today as CRM. And so. Uh, that was Siebel was the fastest growing enterprise application software company in history. Even today, it went from a dead standing start in 93 to about 2 billion in revenue by 2000. And so we invented this market of, you know, sales automation, telesales, internet self-service, customer service, product configuration, marketing automation. And we had about 80% share globally when we sold that company to Oracle in January of 2006. And that in 2007 and 2008, we started thinking about what's next and what's happening in, you know, writ large in information technology. And from 1983, you know, we had seen the, you know, information technology business grow from say a couple hundred billion globally to maybe 3 trillion by 2009. And we thought that the next best thing, next biggest thing, the biggest change in the information technology business was related to the step function of new technologies that were coming online associated with elastic cloud computing, big data, the internet of things and predictive analytics. And so we, then we started C3 in January of 2009. And the idea was to build the enabling technologies. So we built a software platform. We spent a decade and about a billion dollars building a software platform that will allow organizations to take advantage of this new step function of technology to build predictive analytics applications, enterprise AI. So what is that all about? That, that is about, you know, people are very confused about AI and it's a very confusing space and but what we do is very pragmatic. So when we, when we started building enterprise application software, as we think of it today, and this happened in the mid eighties at places like SAP and Oracle and other companies, this was about using database technology and application development tools to build ERP applications and CRM applications and supply chain applications and manufacturing applications that would allow us to report accurately on the state of the business 
three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago, a year ago to tell us what our inventory levels were or where our supply chain broke down or where our equipment broke or what our, what our customer churn was or what our cash levels were. And so now what we are, and that's about a half a billion, I'm sorry, half a trillion dollar market today, enterprise application software. And what we do at C3AI is we take these existing applications that have been put in place by SAP and Oracle and Siebel and Salesforce and Workday and others, and we make them predictive. And what does that mean? So that means, but rather than just tell us what our inventory levels were, okay, six months ago or three months ago, it'll tell us exactly what our inventory levels need to be at every state, every place in the supply chain to meet the demand function in the next six months rather than tell us what customer or what our customer churn was a month ago or six months ago, it'll tell us which customers are going to leave us, okay, in the next 30, 60, 90 days so we can take action to retain the customers. Rather than tell us where our supply chain broke down, which is a major problem that everybody's having, it'll tell us where our supply chain is going to break down in the six months in advance so we can take mitigating action to get the parts to Renton or more lean or, or, or Munich or wherever it may be so that we can ship the product on time and fold to the customer. Rather than tell us what our fraud levels were, what our anti-money laundering events were at a bank, at Deutsche Bank or Bank of America or whatever, or whatever, it'll tell us in real time what fraud level, what we use predictive analytics to identify fraudulent activity in real time so we can stop it. So this is what enterprise AI is all about in our opinion is, or, or this is, this is, this is the game that we're playing. And this promises to be a roughly, you know, half a trillion dollar market. Okay. In not very many years. And the game we're playing at C3 AI, like we played at Siebel systems and like we played at Oracle is to see if we can establish and maintain a market leadership position in this market globally. I, today we're about a quarter of a billion dollar, a quarter of a billion dollar business in revenue. We grew last year at roughly a, a 38 or 40% growth rate. So we're a very rapidly growing business. And we deliver this platform, the C3 AI application platform. And then we deliver 42 turnkey applications for oil and gas, for chemicals, for defense, for intelligence, for the utility industry, telco, what have you. So that's the game we're playing. It's a, it's a whole new market of this business of enterprise AI. And I think we've been largely successful at establishing a leadership position. I think it's highly likely that we will be a leader in this space. And there's some probability that we will be the leader in this space. And if we achieve that, we will be one of the most important software companies in the world. That's, that's a very you know, excellent way to put it. Tom, I've, you know, I've followed IBM for, I don't know, 15, 16 years or so. And I was obviously very impressed when I first looked at the, the Watson platform and then they went ahead and bought some data companies and, you know, it really looked like that's going to be the next generation of computing. And then, you know, even, even Buffett got involved in it and then, but not much has happened in the, you know, in the Watson framework or the AI as standalone product. And, and then what I have seen on the other side is, you know, whether it's SAP with, 
you know, Einstein or Adobe with Sensei, you know, each of these companies are creating their own AI embedded products that sit on their own platform. So, so perhaps you could teach us a little bit about why do you think, you know, the, something like an IBM platform didn't catch on with that promise as it should have. And then yet all these other companies are coming up with their, their own, you know, individual products and why you think your platform, you know, would basically be one of the ones that will dominate the space. You know, IBM was a little bit ahead of its time. And I think they got a little bit ahead of their skis in marketing with Watson. So they have scores of billions of dollars invested in Watson. And the idea was to make enterprise applications predictive, just as I described. The problem is that it, the product didn't work. And so I think that they got a little bit ahead. That's a, you know, very, very expensive project. And, you know, they've, all of their projects failed. And if Watson is still in business today, I'm unaware of it. the other major effort in that effort in that area was GE Predix, and they spent about $6 billion trying to build a similar platform over a decade. And now that's been shut down also. The other efforts that we've seen in the space include Leonardo from IBM, Einstein from SAP, I forget what they call it in Siemens and MindSphere, I think, at Siemens. And they don't, none of these things seem to work. And the Forrester Research just published a, a report of, of enterprise AI, machine learning and AI platforms. And notably, GE is not on it. IBM is not on it. Honeywell is not on it. Siemens is not on it. Salesforce is not on, not even included in the report. And the you the if you look at the 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 company that they ranked as the leading provider of a platform for enterprise AI applications, it is C three AI on, on security, on performance, on applications, on machine learning capabilities, on AI capabilities, and so on. Pretty much, we they they did a very very detailed study, and you'll see that C three AI is the most highly ranked product. So Tom, so, so give us an example at, you know, let's say I am, I'm Pepsi or you could pick any other example of any company in any industry. How would I use your product? You know, how do I buy the platform? How is it, how is it priced? I mean, you know, just give us a, give us an entire point from, you know, the first phone call somebody makes to you or you make to them versus the product getting into action and giving insights that are helpful to the entire company. Well, we deliver about 42 turnkey applications and I'll, let's start with, for example, Shell. Okay. And, and, and Shell used our turnkey applications for AI-based predictive maintenance. This is where they got started. And so this would be predictive maintenance and then an application for production optimization that they used to predict failures. Initially, the first application was to predict failures on devices on offshore, offshore oil rigs. And these guys, and Shell is the fifth largest company in the world, uh, I think second largest hydrocarbon producer in the world. And, you know, they get very sensitive about devices failing on offshore O-rigs. And so the first product we did with them was called Shearwater, where we looked at devices like low pressure compressors on offshore O-rigs, and we could build a predictive maintenance application that would look at all of the telemetry that is coming off all of these 
all of this equipment on an offshore oil rig, which is a pretty big machine. Okay. And weather. Okay. And, okay. And, okay. And what have you and sea state. And we're able to predict device failure with very, very high levels of accuracy. So they could basically, you know, replace the piece of equipment before they had a failure and even a failure in offshore oil rig, and it is catastrophic. So this is a, this is a big deal. And then we went from there to production optimization for their LNG operations in Australia, Queensland gas. And this is using basically a machine learning to basically optimize their production scheduling and their predictive maintenance. And it was kind of amazingly economically beneficial. So let's fast forward now, I think seven years. Shell has standardized out C3 AI for all of their kind of vetting Shell into a clean energy company. So this is everything from, you know, well placement analytics, predictive maintenance for production devices, reliability, uh, 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 process optimization and refining, importantly, integration of renewables, hydrocarbon loss accounting. And this is one of the largest AI applications in deployment on earth that they're using to reinvent Shell to a carbon neutral company. And the economic benefit that Shell has publicly stated that they, that they expect to accrue from these applications this year is in excess of 2 billion. The, you know, another example, we do AI based predictive maintenance for the United States Air Force. And this is United States Air Force has 5,000 aircraft and the average airframe, excuse me, is 28 years old. And the, um, and the, you know, availability of some of these airframes, like an F-18 might be say 50%. That means when the pilot goes in at our dark 30, it pushes the button, you know, to like launch some red light comes off and says, you're not deploying because some system or subsystem has failed. So we've been engaged with the United States Air Force to deploy this, what they call through the rapid sustainment office across the entire fleet of the United States Air Force. So this is, so now we do. AI-based predictive maintenance for E3 Sentry, that's the AWACS, you know, B-1 bomber, KC-135, F-15, F-16, F-18, F-35 Dread Strike Fighter, the list goes on and on. And we're able to increase aircraft availability like order of 45%. And, you know, some of these machines cost $100 million a copy. So this is a pretty big deal. So the economic benefit of that is in billions and the, and the, kind of strategic importance of that, the United States military is incalculable and uh, both Shell and, and the United States Air Force, both of those efforts were recognized by a constellation research. They gave those, both those applications, the supernova award. I think one was in 2021 and one was in 2022 as the most significant AI achievements in production on the planet. So this is the type of thing we do. We do smart grid analytics for, for the grid, for companies like Enel, NG, Con Ed, Duke. Grid is the largest and most complex machine ever built. Okay. And we can, you know, we're, we're aggregating kind of massive amounts of data coming from all the sensors in the grid infrastructure, smart meters, generation uh, devices. Transformer substations, reclosers, capacitance banks, integrating that with information from, you know, all of their enterprise information systems, their sensor networks, weather terrain, social media. So 
at a European grid, we might have, you know, 150 trillion rows of data. Some of these data are arriving at 90 year cycle. We process high schools. We process these data at the rate that they arrive and we enable these companies to deliver safer, cleaner, more reliable energy. So these are examples of the types of applications we do. They're very large scale at Cargill. We're working on food, food distribution, which as you know, this year is a very critical problem because you know, due to what's going on in, in, in the Ukraine, Russia, you know, this is 30% of the world's wheat, which might not come on the market this year. It's highly likely to not come on the market. And so this is really problematic in Egypt, North Africa, Tunisia, due to the price of fertilizer, not coming out, you know, their increase in price of fertilizer. I read it Bloomberg that we're predicting that rice production this year will be decreased by 10%. That's 26 million, 26 million metric tons of rice that will not be produced. Okay. That feeds a half a billion people. So, so, so we're looking at potentially a half a billion to a billion and a half people who don't eat this year. Now, everybody knows and wants to talk about Amber Heard, okay, on the trial and all this kind of silly stuff that people are dealing with in, in Washington, D.C. We're looking at potentially a half a billion to a billion and a half people not eating. And, you know, you'd say this is biblical in scale, but, you know, when they wrote the Old Testament, there were only 100 million people on the planet. So this kind of makes biblical look like nothing. So with Cargill that distributes about a hundred billion dollars worth of food products, okay, we're optimizing the supply chain and the demand chain to, you know, get the right, you know, get protein, okay, and carbohydrates to the right people at the right time so that these people don't starve. So it's pretty important. These are daunting projects and this is not kind of trivial AI games. If we fail, you know, the United States Air Force can't launch. Okay. The grid doesn't operate. Okay. We have offshore overhead failures from hydrocarbon producers and people don't eat. So it's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty daunting to, you know, be yeah, faced with that kind of responsibility. No, fair Tom. I mean, that, that has been the reason. I mean, I, as I said, I got, you know, excited about AI many years ago and the return on investment on this product by itself, the concept is so high, it has surprised me that, you know, we haven't seen a bigger, I would say, end market or penetration of the massive TAM that's the, uh, out there. Now, perhaps you can, uh, you know, educate us that is there a, is there a element of that most of the company, you know, still have old legacy systems or, or on-premise IT environments. Is, is that a deterrent to newer technologies like yours? Like what needs to happen if I run in a very old archaics, you know, architecture that, that it, does your product not work that properly? Because I've always been surprised that this area has not seen that level of growth as I would have expected it, you know, when I first addressed this issue several years ago. One of the gating factors was the cloud and cloud adoption. And that is largely taken care of itself. And you, when, 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 you know, when you got into this business and when I got into this, into this business, people were, when, when I got into the business, it was a couple of years before you, I mean, we were computing on, you know, eight bit processors that were operating at 300 Hertz cycle. And, you know, that was the constraint of what we could do today. We could school up with the cloud, tens of thousands of 24 bit processors operating in parallel that do 
that are doing 24-bit 40-point operations at, you know, three gigahertz cycles. I mean, this is just unimaginable computing power that's available. And storage, you and I can both remember when storage was something that we moved in and out of the machine room with a forklift, right? And uh, boy, those days are over. And now we can deal, you know, hundreds of petabytes, exabytes, yottabytes, you name it, of data, and it's basically free. So this is game changing. And we're able to solve classes of problems that were previously unsolvable, the previous predictive analytics being one of them. And so I think we had to see the, we had to see the adoption of these enabling technologies, cloud, big data, okay, IOT, okay, before this became possible. And now this is just, you know, there's kind of nobody that isn't adopting that cloud. And so all of a sudden, these constraints that we used to have are just gone. And so we're seeing, you know, a rapid acceleration of the adoption cycle, you know, as companies like Shell, like the United States Air Force, like Koch Industries, Bank of America and others realize these just staggering, you know, economic benefits. When I talk about Lionel Bacell, a chemical company that expects to get a billion dollars in economic benefit from the application that are deploying on C3. And, you know, you and I have been around the block now for a few decades, and I'm not saying that, you know, that these aren't great companies to, I think they are great companies, SAP, Oracle, Salesforce, Siebel, PeopleSoft, you know, how many customers sit up and they said, said they're getting one, two, three, four billion dollars in annual economic benefit a year from those applications, that would be zero. Okay. And I, and I have customers lined up, you know, from here to Paris that, you know, that say that every day. No, I, I, which is exactly my point. When I first wrote a paper on this six, seven years ago, I was very optimistic about that, but I understand, you know, the, 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 the cloud adoption part of it. The, another thing that I, I remember writing a lot about was the IOT devices and predictive maintenance of railways and aircrafts and all that other things. And, uh, you know, lately we have seen this massive rush towards 5G. Do you think that could be a, a catalyst or that could be something that could accelerate the adoption of IoT across the ecosystem, which then in turn helps your business uh, as people are able to ingest all that data in real time and get uh, analytics? Well, IoT was a constraint, okay, but now it's just kind of happened. I mean, there's nothing that doesn't have a sensor on them. Most people have about three sensors on them. Okay. And, you know, and pretty soon most people will have 10 sensors on them. Okay. So we have machines are censored. We, today we have what, a hundred billion ARM devices out there alone, just from ARM, hundred billion. This is not a small number. Now we have with, with, you know, 5G definitely is an accelerant. Okay. In terms of, in terms of accelerating the adoption of this technology, and it definitely plays in here, but I think. You know, we've been talking about AI since what, 1950, okay? And, you know, Marvin Minsky and all these guys at MIT, you know, and it just, we had to wait for the enabling technologies, just like enterprise application software, we needed enabling technologies. And the enabling technologies there were broadband with communications, pneumatic laptop computing devices, relational database technology, importantly, graphical user interface technology that was really popularized, as you will call, by Microsoft in 1995 with Windows 95. 
So those were the gating factors. Those were the enabling technologies that, that allowed enterprise application software to become the half a trillion dollar industry that it is today. And, but for AI, we needed the cloud. We needed broadband with communications, you know, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, and they're all accelerants and this just happens. And, you know, in the future, the idea that any company is going to be satisfied knowing what their inventory was, what their customer churn was, what their device failure rates were, is just, I mean, it's not going to happen. Everybody's going to want to know what will it be? Okay. What is my, what my EST footprint was? I mean, that's fine and dandy. And you're going to be able to comply with the SEC and you're going to be able to comply with BlackRock. But more importantly, companies are setting goals that are, you know, I think critical to the planet, critical to all of us, that they achieve, you know, zero net carbon footprint by say, whatever year it is, 2030, 20, I mean, 20, 2040, 2050, whatever it might be. And in order to do that, you need you need to be able to predict where your scope one, scope two, scope three footprint will be in one year and two years, and then put it together the mitigation techniques to get to where you want it. And so this this is, I think there is no application. I mean, predictive is going to be a level zero requirement. I'm completely on board with you. Now, here's another question like this. Now we have you know a few really large public cloud providers, whether it's Amazon, Microsoft, or Google, which probably three of them control majority of the market share. Eventually companies will have to figure out, you know, on which platform they build the next generation applications, what they do to the old one, how they port them over. And these three companies will most likely have the larger fo footprint than, than the smaller ones. Now, each one of them is also selling their own machine learning tools or their own products that can help get more insights out of the, the wide amount of data and the operations that people are building on it. So if I am one of those customers that eventually will, you know, go with one of the hyperscale cloud providers, you know, why do, why will I go to your product or what's my, my, you know, what's my reason to choose C3 AI rather than any of the cloud providers, they are their products. Well, I think that, you know, the work that's going on in Google cloud at AWS and at Azure, Microsoft Azure is really impressive. And the, and these guys, and the rate of innovation there in terms of microservices is staggering with things like Lambda, okay, and S3 and Vertex at Google, you know, DynamoDB at AWS. I mean, I mean, these guys are just rocking it. Okay. Now the, where C3 comes in is, you know, one of the things going on with these cloud vendors is people want to take care of, take it, be able to take advantage of all of these microservices. Okay. And they're a little bit worried about being dependent upon any one vendor. And the beauty of using the C3 platform and the C3 applications to deploy these AI solutions is you can run on a hybrid cloud. So any application that's built on you any C3 application or any application that a customer builds with the C3 AI platform will run without modification on the Google cloud. Okay. On Azure, on AWS, okay, on the edge, okay. On a NVIDIA processor or behind the firewall, 
or on any combination thereof. So the future is all about hybrid cloud. And people want to be able, in this way, you can take it when, you know, Google comes up with the next generation of TensorFlow or, you know, or, you know, we have an open source, you know, the next generation of open source data bridge. People want to take advantage of those solutions. And the beauty of the C3 AI architecture is we run on all those platforms and take advantage of any and all of these innovations that the hyperscalers are providing. And we partner very closely with Google. We're on, you know, speed dial with Thomas Curran and his team. These guys are distinguished professionals. We partner very closely with Microsoft, with, with Satya and Judson. We're, we're our, what are, our first partner was AWS. Okay. With, with Andy and Adam. So we're, we're very close to all these firms and they make great products and they're making the world a better place. And our customers are able to take care of, take advantage of all the excellent work that they're doing. So perhaps a little bit more deep dive into your recent partnership with Google. You know, what's that about and, you know, how, how, how are they helping you and how are you helping them? Well, Thomas Kurian is a highly experienced professional in enterprise application software, you know, having been, you know, a very senior leader at Oracle Corporation. And when he took the reins at Google Cloud, he made the decision rather than to compete with the other two primary providers, AWS and Microsoft, based upon CPU seconds and storage hours with an arguably might be a better architecture. I can't make the argument, but, but these guys can't, and it might be true. Okay. But he decided, I'm not going to make that argument. I'm not going to compete on the basis of price. He decided he wanted to compete on the application layer. Okay. So he wanted to provide a Larry, he has a, you know, very large sales organization. I think he's growing up to four or 6,000 people in a very short period of time. These people are experienced enterprise application software people. And he wanted, he was going to complete, to compete at the applications layer. That is to provide applications, to do things like stochastic optimization, the supply chain, supply network risk, demand forecasting, sustainability for manufacturing, EST, what have you, turnkey applications. Now. By providing these applications, he, you know, the net result is people are consuming CPU seconds or they're consuming storage hours, but rather than selling speeds and feeds, he's selling solutions. And so once he made that decision, you know, they spent, you know, they spent a couple of years, like many companies do, trying to develop all these applications themselves. And that's pretty hard. Okay. And if you want, and so then, you know, if you want their... <clears throat> If you want to provide a family of applications, turnkey enterprise applications that run on the Google cloud and take care of all, take advantage of all the Google services, be it TensorFlow, Bigtable, BigQuery, Vertex, with a family of applications that address the value chain of oil and gas, utilities, manufacturing, transportation, telecommunications, defense, intelligence, et cetera, there's actually more there's there's one door in the world you could knock on and it's that door right here. And so they walked in the door and we put together a strategic partnership with them, whereby we have the, the, the Google, I think quite distinguished Google sales organization is now selling our marketing our products globally as their kind of primary means of competition in that market. And as you've seen from their results, you know, in the last year, I think the results speak for themselves. No, no. I, and I completely agree. Competing on the application layer is far more profitable as well. It's a much, much higher gross margin than on the infrastructure layer. 
perhaps then, you know, then who do you see as your primary competitors out there? And, you know, why do you win against them or why do you lose against them? Our competitor is companies that want to build it themselves. And so these are companies where the CIO will want to assemble Take a bunch of microservices from Microsoft and a bunch of microservices from Google, and then a number of you know, like a open source componentry from the Apache open source Hadoop stack, HDFS, et cetera, maybe some pieces from Cloudera, things like data robot or data bricks or data stacks or data, uh, whatever it is, data IQ and cobble and maybe some solutions from from Salesforce, where they have it, a Tableau, okay, a spot fire from a Tibco and cobble these things together in a solution. So this is kind of like trying to build Watson or trying to build Predix. And originally every one of our customers will have spent years and hundreds of millions to billions of dollars trying to build these solutions themselves. Now it's an extraordinarily difficult problem and everybody tries it. And I think it's kind of part of the phase that you need to go through as part of your digital transformation and kind of becoming predictive is you need to try to build it yourself. And your companies frequently deal with like thousands of programmers in, you know, India and China and Georgia. And, but that's our competition is companies need to, they decide they want to spend a few years building them themselves to our, to our knowledge, nobody has ever succeeded. And they spend two, three, four years. And then when they're done with that, they come back to us like Shell, like Coke, like Johnson Controls and like the United States, the United States Army, the United States Air Force. So that's the competition is build it yourself. So Tom, we have about five odd minutes left as well. I would, I would not be doing our listeners any service if I don't ask you, how do you, you know, when you first started, perhaps the world was a mainframe world, then it went into a client server world. Then we are now moving back to a you know, cloud computing, which is like a mainframe in my view, the world as well. H how do you think the world is going to evolve, whether it's on the computing side or the application side or, you know, databases, operating systems, social media, like anything where, you know, what you found surprising in the past 10 years and, you know, what do you predict is, is going to be the fun facts for all of us to see over the next five years or so? Well, if you look at five years, I think it's very clear that we'll be moving all the computing to the edge, you know, on very small, very exp inexpensive, very powerful computers. Okay. That are, that are, that are networked together into hyper clusters that were previously unimaginable. And now this has, so, so this creates, you know, the network effect by the time we apply, you know, Metcalf's law to this the power of the network comes just simply staggering. Okay. Metcalf's law kind of, you know, with, with almost, you know, Moore's law as an exponent. Okay. It, it becomes simply staggering. So you saw very, very large classes of problems in areas like, you know, precision health, where, you know, it will be, you will be delivering healthcare, you know, to underserved populations at much lower cost with much greater levels of efficacy than we ever could have before. Now associated with this also are some things that we need to be very concerned about. So with, um, when we get into AI, when we get into deep learning, when we get into facial recognition, I mean, there are some very, very troubling ethical problems that we need to, that we need to be careful about related to privacy. I mean, let's think about 
application, or no question in my mind, okay, that healthcare will be the largest commercial application of, a, of AI. And we could, for example, aggregate the genome sequences and the healthcare histories of the population of the United States into a unified federated image or Germany or China or whatever it might be, into a unified federated image and and build predictive analytics that will predict with very high levels of precision who's going to be diagnosed with what disease in the next five years. Okay, then this gives us the opportunity to intervene clinically and avoid the diagnosis. We combine this, you know, with the power of the, you know, the handheld computer and, you know, cellular devices and the fact that, you know, human beings will be largely censored in this period of time where, you know, kind of like if you remember William Gibson's Neuromancer, I mean, we'll have embedded microprocessors in our cerebrum and in our gut, okay, and on our wrist that will tell us, you know, the, you know, the chemistry of our gut or what's going on with our brain waves or what our blood glucose levels are or our pulse or what have you in, in near real time. So this is, you know, the benefits of this will be staggering. A disease prediction, disease avoidance, genome-specific medical protocols, AI-assisted medicine. Okay, now what's the downside? Okay, whether we're dealing with, you know, with a single care provider or whether we're dealing with a private sector, and I'm not sure provider, I'm not sure which is worse. Okay. You know, the idea that this, that this, that this government or this private enterprise is going to act beneficially, I mean, you can get over that. I mean, see Facebook for details. Okay. And, and so, you know, this, this, you know, who cares about pre-existing conditions when we know what you're going to be diagnosed with? Okay. And the idea that there aren't governments and there aren't companies that won't use these data to set rates, to ration healthcare. If this, this happens hundred percent for certain, it happens. Hopefully it doesn't happen here in China. It happens for a certain. And so this is very scary, very Orwellian stuff. And, uh, you know, we need to be worried about privacy. We need to be worried about security. We look at what's going on with, you know, the application of AI in social media. I mean, this is really scary. And, you know, you know, it's arguably, you know, social media, you know, might be the most destructive technology, you know, invented in the history of mankind. So we, so that while this has enormous potential, you know, for social, you know, environmental and economic benefit. It also has potential to go to a very bad place and we need to be very concerned about it, very active about it, very outspoken about it, or else it's going to get very scary. I mean, my last question would be most about other challenges in, you know, when you talk to these large companies, do you think what's happening, you know, globally in terms of, you know, macroeconomic conditions will force them to delay any upgrading there? you know, IT environment, which in turn has an impact on your business, because unless they upgrade a lot of that stuff, you know, your system can't sit on top of it, you know, or do you think stuff like this is going to be an accelerant in people moving more applications and workloads to the cloud, which in turn would help your business? Well, if we look at the macro situation, the markets are speaking quite clearly and suggesting that we're we can anticipate a recession in Europe and they seem to be anticipating a recession in, in the United States. Well, we can expect, I think, like we've seen, you know, historically every 10 years or seven years, and this has been dragged down a little bit longer through the economic stimulus, 
I think in the short room, we're going to see short term, we're going to see a dramatic decline in technology markets. And we're going to see thousands of companies going out of business. You will see, I think what's going on, we're going to see deglobalization where people are bringing their supply chains home, where we make semiconductors here and we make the, we make pharmaceutical products here, here, wherever here may be, be it Germany or the United States or, or wherever. So I think this, you were getting over this globalization issue. But I think, you know, fundamentally, when you get an economic downturn, people need to save money and, and do things more efficiently. And the, and so with predictive analytics, this is the economic benefits are pretty staggering. So I think this is an accelerant for us. Okay. What, what, what's the, what's the, what is the constraint on growth? The other side of your question, the, the constraint on growth is change management. Okay. These new technologies are very scary. People, labor unions, okay, organized labor, okay, they're, you know, even knowledge workers are, you know, are candidly terrified by the large-scale application of AI, okay, and they should be. And so I think it's really the companies, we've gotten to the point where the ability to realize this economic and social benefit is no longer technical, you know, we've trivialized it. Technology is not in the way. Okay, the, the, the hurdle that we need to scale to realize the social and economic benefit of digital transformation and enterprise AI is change management, is getting the workforces to embrace this technology and training our workforces to be able to use it so they're not, so that they don't become obsolete. And that's a big hurdle. And that's what I think will be the constraint on growth. Tom, one more if you won't mind, uh, what about labor shortage or tech labor shortage? That has been an area that has been a big issue, you know, the last several years. It's only been and even spiking in the last six months to 12 months that I have seen across the board. How do you think that gets resolved? Well, I think that it gets resolved by a very significant tech recession that has just begun. It, it, just, it just started. And, you know, we've seen this, we saw it in 1980, we saw it in 1990, we saw it in 2000, we saw it in 2002, we saw it in 2008, and now we're seeing it again in spades. And I think this is just getting started. We've now we're seeing a lot, we're seeing, you know, hiring freezes and, you know, and layoffs at every place from Facebook to Salesforce, to Amazon, to, to Uber, to Tesla. And uh, before this is all over, you know, thousands of series A, B, C companies, if they don't have cash, they don't, can't generate cash, they're going out of business. And so I think this tech, this, this human capital shortage is going to take care of itself. Uh, in that there's going to be a lot of people out there looking for jobs because we're going to see thousands of technology companies going out of business. When this is over, the world will be a better place. I think this correction is probably five to seven years overdue. And, uh, you know, we've seen these corrections before. I think they're fundamentally healthy events and we need to burn off all the underbrush. Okay. And, and, and go about growing the forest at global scale. So, you know, the strong companies will get stronger and the weak companies will be some sources of technology and human capital for those who survive. But I think this labor shortage is about to go away. Tom, lovely. Is spoken like a true capitalist. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to having you on again very soon. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the discussion.